Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten-free whilst lusting after bread, Dave Denniston. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, of course, we here love talking about taxes and ways to save on taxes. Our next guest is a CPA specializing in tax credits. She does a lot of advanced tax planning and compliance stuff, and she really got into this whole tax credit niche. So certainly a lot of us doctors and professionals really could use help on reducing our taxes as much as possible. That's why I'm excited to have Catherine Tyndall from Dominion Enterprise Services. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks for having me, Dave. Glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're talking pre-chat before the podcast here and talking about we have something in common with uh, desire to help out doctors and sounded like you, you had some health stuff that happened with you at a young age. Yeah. So when I was a kid, I had to have a bunch of orthopedic work done from a, a birth defect in one of my legs. And so all through my early childhood and early teen years, uh, I was determined that I wanted to go into medicine because I wanted to, you know, pay back. <laughs> that was kind of my my feeling. And then as I went farther along and realized, um, you know, kind of what my particular gifts were, that getting into taxation was actually going to be a better fit for that. And that I, I felt given what I was good at, that was going to be a better way for me to serve other people. But so I definitely, um, for the doctor clients that I do have, we, we have a genuine connection there just because of the, uh, you know, when you live your life and live your professional life and service to other people, that kind of really changes, changes the game, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's interesting. When I was growing up, I loved track and was a 400 meter runner and got injured all the time. So I actually wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon or something like that. And then, and I, I love biology, I love chemistry, but then I got into physics in high school, AP physics, and it just killed me. And that's when I, I figured out, you know what, maybe as much as I like science and like this stuff, maybe it isn't for me. And mm. so here, here we are, ended up, um, I applied as a pre-med initially and got rejected from some schools, but then I got into uh, a school and got a nice scholarship when I applied as a business major instead. So here we are, 24 years later and, and uh, bumps and bruises along the way. So Catherine, I would love to, to hear more about your background. How did you get into taxes? You mentioned you kind of felt you had a skill set. Was it something you did in, in undergrad initially or were you doing something else? Yeah, so I was in pre-med and was going through the coursework and having a really good time. But then I started to have some conversations with a, a family member who was in practice. And she was just saying how it was so difficult, you know, how the industry had changed and uh, how uh, it was really difficult having a family home life balance and um, being a mom at the same time. She found it was getting increasingly difficult. And I really enjoyed the coursework and, you know, enjoyed you know, some of the like clinical interactions, those sorts of things. But uh, my family actually had a tax practice and I had always written it off as it wasn't a good fit. Uh, but then they talked to me more and they said, you know, you realize a lot of the things that you like the most about the medical industry, it's the same thing in tax, you know, and if anything, it, it tends to be closer client relationships just because you're, 
you have a much smaller client list and then you're working with them much more hands-on and you usually those relationships will last, you know, anywhere. Uh, I know for my parents, like a lot of their clients, they've had the same clients for like 20, 30, 40 years. So uh, it really helps you have that closeness, but then also just the nature of the work itself. Uh, I realize that I'm just, it must be a, a genetics thing, but uh, the arithmetic side and the, you know, legal interpretation and, uh, you know, reasoning part of what goes into, you know, the U.S. tax system is extremely complex. Uh, I found it, I just really enjoyed it. I enjoyed that complexity and I enjoyed the challenge of it. So it just, it ended up being a uh, happy, happy transition. And, you know, I've really enjoyed being in practice and being a partner here at the firm uh, and being able to have those client relationships and have both, you know, kind of that bedside manner, but also just able to, because what we focus on in the firm is really more strategic tax advisory rather than just filing tax returns, it tends to be a lot more complex situations and a lot more, um, I always feel like I'm playing a game of chess with trying to get people's tax bill as low as we can with the techniques that are available to us. And it, it's just very engaging. Absolutely. Well, it's, and it's, it always changes, right? I think that's the thing about taxes and the investment world. Like, um, here we're recording this in September of 2022. I think this is going to come out in December of 2023 of 2022. So we'll we'll be at the tail end of the year by the time this episode is is released. And I think we have a sunsetting coming up in 2025. I think it is right of a lot of the the um, Trump tax cuts that passed a few years back. Yeah, and it's hard to tell because I think for a lot of people, you know, it is like you're looking into a crystal ball. You know, I think I think you know, up in front of us, considering what's going on with inflation right now, there's going to be a lot of modifications, you know, coming with the tax code. And I think too, with the impending recession that everybody's warning about, there's just going to be a lot of tax code changes if, if, and when that does come. So it's kind of hard to predict what's going to happen. And, uh, you know, I think the past couple of years we've been having constant, like, uh, scares, I think, for even, for, you know, for a lot of people, especially like in medical, where you're in those higher brackets of, you know, are my rates going to go up? You know, are cap gain rates going to go up? Like, what's happening? Am I going to lose my step up? Things like that. And, you know, you just can't tell until it comes. So it's it's kind of like trying to have a crystal ball with some of the changes. But there's certain nuance, certain things that we see that kind of keep coming back. And, um, you know, it's it's good to, I think, have, have that kind of a relationship with a tax advisor where they're keeping track of that stuff for you. And, you're not having to really worry about those things so that when and if they do come, you know, you can plan around them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, on this podcast, we talk a lot about taxes and um, we've talked about all kinds of things. The basics like a 401k that people can have, health savings accounts, cash balance plans, um, having your own insurance company, you know, all of these kind of, of big tax deductions. Um, let's talk about maybe two different kinds of people here. You know, we really have someone that works in a hospital that is listening to this podcast. They have a W-2. And then we have someone else that owns a practice or that maybe they're part of a private practice as a, as a part owner in it. Um, let's talk about the first group first. So those of us that work in a hospital, uh, what are maybe two or three things that fly under the radar that you think should, people should be aware of and should be thinking about to help reduce their taxes? Yeah, I would say, you know, the, the key thing in key thing in the tax code is, is that if you're a W-2 employee somewhere, all of the incentives and all of the ways where you can kind of game your tax bill are pretty limited for you. You're really only able to access things like retirement contributions, 
and that's pretty much what you're left with, you know, deferred compensation plans if you can do that. But for the most part as a W-2, you're really just, you're just gonna get stuck with the tax. And, you know, so I think for a lot of people when they're considering going into private practice or, you know, considering uh, being in an arrangement where you're a 1099, you know, 1099 contractor rather than W-2 employee, uh, that's something where it, it's worth having a conversation with your tax professional because there's probably a lot of things that you can be deducting or doing or strategizing with once that the character of that income is changed from being employed to being self-employed. Um, it just opens up a lot more avenues for you as a, as a, you know, at that point you're considered a business owner. And so there's a lot more avenues that are open to you for how you can strategize around certain things. And, and a lot of those techniques that you mentioned, you know, things like, can you have a captive insurance company? Um, can you hire family members? You know, strategizing around purchase of real estate, if you're going to own the offices that you operate out of, things like that, you know, and you can really strategize around those things when you, you know, have more control versus just being a W-2 employee where, where it's just, you're just going to have to pay those ordinary income tax rates and there's not much you can do to get around that. Absolutely. So let's talk uh, to the business owners then in this particular case. So what, what do you think are two or three things that maybe are flying under the radar for business owners that maybe they haven't heard about before that would be good for them to know? Yeah, I would say for your business owners, you know, the top opportunity that I see in the tax code right now, and this is something that my firm does a lot of because we, we've become a specialty, we're a CPA firm, but we've basically we're a specialty provider for other CPA firms is the employee retention credit. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of it. You've probably gotten emails advertising it to you, probably heard it on the radio. It's all over the place. Um, but it's one of those programs where for those who can take advantage of it, you know, it very easily turns into a six-figure credit, which comes back as checks in the mail. But it is, unlike the, say, the PPP program for people who are familiar with that, there's a lot more complexity involved with the employee retention credit. And I think there's just a lot less uh, public education that's happened with it. And I've also found a lot of CPAs just haven't really approached their clients with it, you know, for the most part, just because they tend to not, they tend to, most CPAs tend to not be aggressive about incentive programs like that. And because it's a payroll tax credit, a lot of them, you know, were kind of out of their element with it, but that's the top opportunity. What, what is it? What is this, this, this tax credit? It's a payroll tax credit. It's up to $26,000 per employee. And it is it was released back during the pandemic around the same time as the PPP, but the nice thing with it is because it's a tax credit, you can go back and claim it if you missed it. And so companies can be eligible uh, through two main ways. The first way is through if you had quarterly revenue discrepancies. So if your revenues were inconsistent in 2020 and 2021 compared to 2019 on a quarterly basis. And that's just something where you just need to have a tax professional run your numbers for that. And then the second way a company can be eligible is if they had disruptions in their operations due to government mandate orders. And so most commonly for physicians where I see this coming in is things like limitations on, uh, on what services could have been, could be offered to patients, you know, if you have things that were routine care or preventative care, those things were limited for a certain amount of time in certain states or certain cities. Uh, things like that would be qualifying. Other things like, uh, you know, mandated social distancing that reduced your ability to see patients uh, for, you know, a certain time period. Anything that, that 
that smells like a you know government interference in your operations tends to qualify. But that's one of those things where it's highly uh, idiosyncratic to the business and the jurisdiction that you're in. But in general, you know, for most physicians where I see they're able to qualify for this program, you know, it can easily, depending on the headcount of personnel that you have in your operation, it can easily turn into a six-figure tax credit just because it's based on what you pay in wages and, and those operations tend to be very wage heavy. So so just to repeat, the, there were two different criteria. One was based on your finances change for the business between 2019 and 2020. And the other one being that you had a disruption of some sort in that, that time period where like you had to move from seeing patients in person to telemedicine for example, would qualify. And I take it you would have had to have employees in 2019. So for someone that started a new practice in 2020, wouldn't necessarily apply to them. Is that right? So if they started the practice after February of 2020, then yes, there's a separate lung of the program for those businesses. Caps are much smaller, but it's still worthwhile. I think the main thing that I, I drive, for, drive home for uh, people that I talk to about this credit is I would recommend that you don't try to self-assess yourself for it and Google it and say, oh, you know, I'm not eligible because I've, I have a lot of people who approach me who think that they're not eligible for the program and then they are, you know, because there's so many different avenues where things can qualify. You just have to talk to somebody who really understands the rules around it because it is very, it's very picky the way the rules work. And usually, you know, within a, you know, 10 to 15 minute conversation, I'm able to figure, you know, diagnose like, okay, you do look like you're eligible or, you know, no, you're, you know, you were a, a practice operating in Florida, you had zero government restrictions and, you know, you just did consistently better during the whole pandemic, you're not going to qualify versus, um, you know, dentist's office in New York City where you couldn't do any routine care for four months. Uh, yes, you definitely qualify. <laughs> so I think it just comes down to, you know, the idiosync- idiosyncrasies of, of your actual practice because, because there's a interpretive way to qualify for it with the government orders, just speaking to somebody who really understands how those work and, you know, has experience with doing that interpretation will be important. Got it. And is this something that is going to be around for a while? It sounded like it was COVID specific, so probably isn't going to be here forever. Yeah, so it's a one-time credit. It's for years 2020 and 2021. The full force of the credit is available until this coming April. It'll start to phase out and then, you know, each quarter it will subsequently phase out quarters of the credit because you basically have a couple years to go back. So there is a time limit on it and it's one of those things where it, you know, the main thing that I urge people around with it is, you know, if it usually takes a couple hours to do all the document collection for it, maybe one to two hours um, of your staff's time to get the right documents in place. But for a couple hours of your time, it's, you know, that's a pretty high ROI if you could be sitting on, you know, a couple, potentially a hundred thousand plus of free cash flow back to your business. And right now the big bottleneck is it, because it's a paper process with the IRS, because of how quickly they deployed it, they didn't build an e-file system for it. It takes about three to four months for them to actually process the claims once they receive them in the mail and then pay out. So, you know, companies, uh, I know we're recording this in September, but, you know, it's usually if this comes out December, you'd probably be looking at getting your credits back like April, May, based on what current processing times are. And now for a commercial break. Have you been wondering... What I'm so tired of working. What would it take to retire? Maybe you've been thinking about, gosh, I want to have a plan 
for getting out of medicine, but I'm not sure of the right way to do that. What are the steps that I need to take? Well, that is why I put together this ebook, which is the roadmap to retire by 45. It lays out literally step-by-step step what you need to do, how to go through it, how to calculate it. Uh, I think this is a fantastic ebook that will probably take you 15, 20 minutes to read through, but really lays it out step-by-step. If you want the ebook, just text ROAD to retire. That's R-O-A-D-T-O-R-E-T-I-R-E to 833-343-2986. Again, text ROAD, T-O, retire, ROAD to retire to this number, 833-343-2986. It'll be 20 minutes that will really change your life. And now back to the show. And what about someone that was like a solopreneur? You know, they are, they were doing 1099 income. Maybe they were doing locum tenums, doing contracting mm-hmm. with different hospitals. Uh, they don't have any employees. It's just them. Like, it does, are they disqualified from it? Yeah, because basically anyone who's uh, owner operator, so the owner's wages and then any family members of the owner that are, you know, in the operation, their wages wouldn't count. So if it's a solo person and you're the sole owner, then it, you know, your wages wouldn't count. Interesting. Anything more regarding that you think folks should know, pitfalls, qualifications, whatever about the employee, employee retention credit folks should know? Yeah, I would say the first piece is, you know, don't rely on your CPA having done a full assessment. You know, if they don't have access to your quarterly financials and they haven't had a very specific conversation with you about what was the nature of the government interference during the pandemic in your operations, that specific question, if they haven't had that discussion with you, then you really haven't been assessed for the program. So that's the first pitfall I would say. On our website, we actually have a PDF document that goes through my top mistakes that I see people make with the ERC program. So that might be a helpful resource for listeners here if you wanna learn more about the program itself. You know, I think the second most common thing that I see people make a mistake with, and I tend to not see physicians do this as much because they tend to be more careful, but you know, the real, the real proof in the pudding for this program is working with somebody that's an experienced credentialed person because we have up to five years for the IRS to come back and audit these. You know, there's a lot of companies that are sort of out there that are consulting firms or they're just not tax professionals trying to do this work. And I'm already starting to deal with resolution work related to it. So I would just recommend when you do consider a professional for something like this, uh, really make sure that the credentials of that person are good and you're not just relying on things like happy client testimonials or the the total amount of claims that this company has filed because we, we are in an enforcement gap with the IRS. And so a lot of these happy people are not going to be so happy in a couple of years when they get audited. So that that's my uh, my top advice. But I would say it's, you know, any business that has over five employees, you need to talk to a tax professional about it because it's potentially so valuable. It's one of those ones where it's worth, you know, a 10, 15 minute conversation to see if it's worth, you know, pursuing for your company. Got it. Awesome. Well, I think we've, we've touched on that really well. I want to touch back on something that you said earlier about hiring your kids. Because I think this is such a fascinating subject and different CPAs and tax preparers will have different takes on it. So I'm curious to get your take at all on it, Catherine, you know, in terms of hiring kids. So I have a 17-year-old and I have a 10-year-old, mm-hmm. two daughters. And so 
what should I be thinking about, you know, if I want to, you know, pay them to get the tax deduction? What are some pros and cons? What shouldn't, should I do? What shouldn't I do? And thinking about trying to get my kids to work a little bit in the business. Yeah, I would say, you know, the first thing I, I tell people is there is definite tax savings there because you're shifting from your bracket to your kid's bracket, which, you know, since the standard deduction is around $12,000, it's basically tax-free up to that. If you're a high bracket earner, you know, you can continue to pace it up from there. But you also save uh, self-employment taxes when you hire your kids specifically as a loophole in the tax code for it. It's a very standard strategy. And so it's not one of those things where, oh, am I going to get audited? Like, is this going to be disallowed? No, it's a very common uh, common strategy. I'd say the, the biggest pitfall around it is you do need to be able to demonstrate a bona fide business purpose for the hire. So you can't just pay your kids to sit around and, uh, you know, be on their iPad. You know, it, they actually have to be doing something in the business that you can show, you know, is actually, you know, they're doing real work. And then the second piece that I see that people can goof up is you have to pay them a fair market value wage. So you can't just load a bunch of money onto their tax return and they're only working, you know, for you maybe two hours a week or something like that. It really, you have to look at it as, you know, if you were going to hire somebody to do the work that this child is doing, how much would you be paying that person? And that's what the compensation needs to be based around because it's, you know, it all comes back to that bona fide business purpose. But it's a great, it's a great technique to save taxes. And it's also just a, I've found for the clients that I have that use this technique, it's just a great parenting technique because you've got kids getting in that mindset of, you know, earning some of their own money, having a closer relationship with you and in a, you know, they understand more what your business does. And that's a big part of your life if you're a business owner. And it just you know, gives them skills and helps them develop. And I've seen it just be a good technique beyond just the tax savings. But those are the those are the pitfalls, mostly for the uh, the tax savings piece. And do you pay them W-2 or 1099 or does it They need matter? to be W-2. Need to be W-2. So they yep. get treated as employee. And then, um, so you still pay payroll taxes, correct? No, you get a loophole. So you don't have to pay the payroll taxes on them, um, I believe, until they're 17 or 18. But once they are 17 or 18, then you're paying a payroll tax. Yeah. And, and usually, even if you're paying the payroll taxes, if you're in a top bracket and you're still under that 12000 you know, the arbitrage on that still works out, even though you're paying the 15.3. Because if you're shifting from 30 to 15.3, you're still saving 15%. Got it. So let me give you a scenario. So let's say uh, my oldest daughter, she is going into college a year from now, scary enough, <laughs> and... I thought about, hey, we're at the bracket we're in for every single dollar I make. You know, now I'm between federal and state. It's like 47%, right, yeah. that that I'm in. So if she's willing to work for the business, which is a big if, but if she is and she goes to, um, let's say, a private college, right, like she goes to Dartmouth or Cornell or, you know, you name a private college. I mean, you're talking about 80 grand a year all in for those. But if I'm able to pay her $40,000, then that essentially helps to negate a huge amount of that cost, which could be used to pay her college education. I'm curious, with that, what should I be thinking about if someone else is listening to this, you know, that they say, oh, that would be a great way to pay for a kid's college education. We know that, that you said earlier, it has to be for a legitimate purpose. They actually have to be doing work you know, towards that being paid a market wage. So they have to be willing to work to do that. It could be over the summer, could be during the school year part-time too. 
And my thought was, hey, deposit it in a joint account where the kid's named on it, and then you could write a check to the college or institution or whatever that maybe they sign for. Any thoughts on that kind of strategy? Yeah, I think that strategy's good. You know, the, the big piece of it is as long as you, you're able to justify the dollar amount of that wage for the qual- what they're doing for you for work. You know, I'd say an easy way to help substantiate that at a higher figure is you figure out what they're going to do and you contact, you know, an outside company who does a similar thing. So maybe not necessarily an employee and say, okay, you know, I'm going to have, I'm going to have my daughter run my social media presence, call up a marketing company and ask them, you know, if I, if I were going to have you do this, 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 and this, how much, you know, how much of a monthly charge would it be? And then you can kind of back into what that, that rate is. I'd say the other two, the other point that I should mention, which you did bring this up is, you know, they have to have full right of the funds. So you can't, you know, pay them a W-2, but then it's actually just still in you as the business owner's control. Like you do have to pay them the W-2 and actually transfer funds to, you know, an account that they have control over, you know, joint account is fine. You know, it just has to be that they, you know, it's not just you putting from one, your pocket to your other pocket, really. Yeah, I would say that that's, that's a great technique around that. And especially, you know, it helps fund those things like college or, you know, if the kid wants a car or things like that, you know, it can be a great way to basically get those things at a lower arbitrage tax rate instead of you just outright, you know, spending where you're going to be losing, like you said, you know, 40 cents on the dollar to tax because those are non-deductible expenses for you. So that's a, it's a great way to work around that and gives your child a lot more independence too. That's what I've seen. Yeah, absolutely. When Con being in this case, she's over 18. So she still has to pay. We have to pay FICA taxes. She pays her part. We pay our part on that. So because uh, she'd be over 18 at that point. So something concerned, but still her tax bracket would be crazy low. She has no other job, right? I mean, with the standard deduction and everything else, 10 to 15 percent in taxes versus the nearly 50 percent I'd be paying. So makes a lot of sense if she's willing to work, which she may not be. She wants to work at Starbucks right now and doesn't want to work for dad. So who knows? We'll see. So Catherine, any other, you know, major strategies we should be thinking about that um, we haven't covered today? Um, In terms of strategies, you know, the big advice that I always give to business owners and, you know, practitioners and those sorts of people is you really need to look at the quality of the relationships that you have in your financial life. And I think for a lot of people, the relationship they have with a tax provider is really just to get their returns filed. And so if you don't have a planning relationship with your tax professional where you're meeting with them during the year and actually talking about things and that, and that the frame of the relationship is really how is this tax professional saving me money, that's something to reconsider. You know, I think a lot of people don't realize what you actually pay a tax professional is their fee and also the missed opportunities of the extra tax that you pay. And so if you're not doing planning strategies and techniques, especially if you're a business owner, you know, for W-2 employees, this is not nearly as salient just because there's not a lot that a tax professional can even do for you just because of the code. But for a business owner, or a, you know, you have your own private practice um, or your 1099 income, you know, there are more opportunities for you there. And, you know, you should realize that, you know, it, it's like preventative care, right? It's, uh, it's, it's well worth doing a little bit of preventative care to avoid, you know, triggering really large tax bills unnecessarily. And I would especially say, you know, if you're early in your practice or if this is your first year being self-employed, those sorts of things, talking to a tax professional before you start earning your income is really going to be helpful because there might be certain techniques that need to be executed before you actually earn your income in the company. And so if this is, you know, 
I know this is coming out in December, so it's probably going to be a little late for people. But if, if you're at just in that professional point where you're switching to that 1099 income or having a practice or that sort of thing, having a relationship with a tax professional when you're setting everything up is also extremely helpful. All right. Good stuff, Catherine. If, if people have more questions, they want to get in touch with you on any of these things, review over their taxes, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, I would say uh, for us uh, right now in our practice, we're really focused on this employee retention credit. So if that's something that your company hasn't filed for, or you're considering different providers for it, which I'd recommend you talk to a couple people about it before you decide who you're going to work with, you can visit our website. We have a PDF on there that's uh, top five mistakes and also just a lot more resources about more nitty gritty technical about that credit. But you can visit us on the website and there's ways to contact us and uh, just get more information about different tax saving programs and things that are available to you. All right, Catherine, well, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. This is great. All right, my friends, for the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, this is Dave Denniston wrapping up another episode. Remember to slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, thank you, my friends, so much for listening to the last podcast. I am pleased to announce that I am now a completely independent financial advisor, where to the point now I can really integrate my financial planning practice with this podcast. If you might be looking for help, if you have found any of our information here interesting or relevant and you're looking for a second opinion, I'm making myself available for 30-minute strategy sessions. And if you want to arrange a time to meet with me to discuss your situation and see if we might be a good fit for one another, I'd like you to call our office and speak with Kyla. Our phone number is 612-284-2409. Again, that's 612-284-2409. And I look forward to helping you with your financial situation. And now for some lovely legal disclosures required by our lawyer friends. Investment advice is only offered in jurisdictions where Centurion Financial Strategies, LLC, Centurion is appropriately registered or exempt from registration. Our Form ADV Part 2 brochure can be obtained free of charge at advisorinfo.sec.gov by searching for our firm name or its unique CRD number, which is 316-454. This podcast is not a solicitation to provide advisory services in any jurisdiction in which we are not appropriately registered or excluded from registration. The information, statements, and opinions contained in this podcast have been obtained from or are based on information obtained from sources which we believe to be reliable, but we do not warrant or guarantee the timeliness or accuracy of such information. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as personalized investment, tax, or legal advice. Opinions expressed by any guest are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the firm's views. You should carefully consider your own financial circumstances and needs prior to making any investment in securities or purchasing any insurance products. As always, past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing in securities or really anything else involves the risk of loss. If by some chance in this particular podcast I mentioned insurance products, insurance products are backed by the financial strength and claims paying ability of an issuing insurance company. They may be subject to restrictions, limitations, and early withdrawal fees, which vary by issue. You should always consider the charges, risks, expenses, and investment objective of any insurance products before entering a contract. And that, my friends, wraps it up. Wish you all the best. Feel free to contact us 
with any info at www.daviddeniston.com. Thank you so much and have a good one. Bye-bye.